0: Subscribe now using promo code LIGHT24 to save 50% and unlock access to everything foreign policy has to offer.
1: Thanks for listening to this Institute of Art and Ideas podcast, bringing you philosophy for our times. Here at the IAI, we're committed to taking philosophy out of dusty books and lecture halls and into the heart of public life. If you enjoy this debate and want to carry on the discussion or watch over a thousand more debates and talks on all the latest issues in philosophy, science, politics and arts, visit
0: IAI.tv. Remember to subscribe and review on iTunes.
2: This is a session about rethinking capital. And the theme of the debate is as follows. As China and Russia adopt their own variants, the reign of capitalism seems absolute. Yet there are many who wish for an alternative and some who claim a final crisis is in the making. Is there a radical alternative that we've not yet discovered? Or is the reality that capitalism is the only viable economic system? So we can do that in 55 minutes without any trouble, I would have thought. <laughs> uh, within that, uh, there are supposed to be three themes we're supposed to address. The first is, what is capitalism and is its reign absolute? The second is, are there viable new alternatives to capitalism? And the third, what does the future hold? And we have an extraordinary panel here. Uh, and, uh, you know, most people in my position say, oh, how terribly privileged you are to, on these occasions. Well, by heaven, this is true. Um, let me on, the, on the far left, and of course there's no political connotation start at all, <laughs> is Paul Krugman, who's winner of the 2008 Nobel Prize in Economics and an outspoken criticism of austerity. He's Professor of Economics at the City University of New York Columnist for the New York Times, and you'll know about his books. Not recently, the uh, most recently, "The Conscience of a Liberal" and "End This Depression Now." Next here is Stephen Dorrell, who's had a remarkable career. He was once the youngest member of Parliament. After that, One Secretary of State again. for National <laughs> <laughs> Heritage and <laughs> Secretary of State for Health and Financial Secretary to Her Majesty's Treasury and known by some people um, as, what was the name of that novel written by Oscar Wilde? (laughs) Uh, And finally, he's now... (laughs) (laughs) Dorian Gray, of course, (laughs) I was referring to. (laughs) Uh, And finally, he's Senior Advisor now for uh, KPMG's UK Healthcare and Public Sector Practice. He was 35 years in Parliament. And then on my right is, uh, definitely the wrong place to put him, is Alex Kalinikos, who's editor of International Socialism and professor of European Studies at KCL, is the author of over 30 volumes, including Imperialism and the Global Economy. Anyway, let's start, if we may, by Alex, your pitch on rethinking capital.
3: Well, we have to start by acknowledging that capitalism is broken. Anyone who um, suggests that capitalism is basically healthy and functioning effectively is kidding themselves and kidding us. Um, Paul, among other leading economists, is engaged in a debate about what's called secular stagnation, which is the problem that, if we look at the major economies, as they've recovered from the, the great crash and crisis at the end of the last decade, they uh, grow much more slowly than in the historic pa- past they have. And there's increasing discussion of how maybe the roots of this slow growth, I mean forget about all the boasts of the the new government, and so on. <laughs> uh, unfortunately, not that new. Um, the, the roots of this relatively slow growth lie deep in capitalism as a system. So that's the first point I wanted to make. The second point is, uh, before we uh, rethink capital, we, c- we need to think capital. What is, what is capital? It's very striking. Um, when mainstream economists are asked about capitalism, they usually reply about, about markets. Uh, and that reflects a wholly inadequate understanding of capital itself, which is true even in Thomas, Thomas Piketty's very important book, Capital in the 21st Century. Uh, I, uh, it may, may have... Uh, Roger may have sort of insinuated that uh, that I'm a Marxist. And I certainly think that Marx's approach to, c- to capital uh, provides a basis for understanding what's what's going on. Marx understands capital not in the way in which mainstream economists do as an asset of some kind, for Marx capital is a social relationship or more precisely an antagonistic social relationship constituted in particular by two things, exploitation, the fact that workers um, are forced to labour in a way that uh, provides capitalism with its profits or capital more precisely with its profits and secondly competition the capitalists themselves aren't a unified group. They're, they themselves have antagonistic relations with each other as they compete, seeking to grab as much of, if you like, the loot each for themselves, each individual firm, each individual unit of the system. And for Marx, it's the interaction of these two features, exploitation and competition, that means that what we've experienced in the last eight or ten years isn't just a... A terrible accident a result of corrupt bankers or incompetent politicians although don't get me wrong there are plenty (laughs) of corrupt bankers and incompetent politicians these but these kinds of crises are intrinsic to capitalism as a system and in particular uh, reflect a chronic chronic problems of profitability and it's at the minute capitalism is struggling with precisely chronic problems of profitability, which I think explain the secular stagnation. So capitalism is a system that isn't working, and therefore this discussion about whether they're feasible and attractive
1: alternatives is a really important one. First of all, the the question, have we reached the end of history? Is this a final state of knowledge about economic structures? The, The answer to that is clearly no. Uh, There's plenty wrong in the world. There's plenty that we need where we can uh, see opportunities for improvement. That's the first point to make. Second point, though, I think, is to pick up one of Alex's core arguments, which is that capitalism in its current form leads to slow growth. Now, I don't think that's true. I think if you look at the history of economic life on the planet, actually it was the principles that we now label capitalism that were developed during the 19th and 20th centuries that led to uh, unprecedentedly fast growth and led therefore to improved living standards uh, right across the globe the issue with what we currently call capitalism there are several issues with it which do have to be addressed come to those if i may in a moment but i want to Pause to be clear what I mean by the word capitalism. And there seem to me two principles that are fundamental to the economic structures that have created that growth, that have led to the opportunity for improved living standards. The first is the principle of private property, that people have a sense of ownership, of literal ownership, that is defended by society. That's the first principle. And the second principle is that within a society, if you have the principle of private property, uh, you also, in my view, ought to have active markets in order that those who own property have the opportunity to compete against each other, certainly, uh, but most importantly, to be held to account. Because what markets do, and this is in the end, I think, an argument about the role of markets, what markets do is to diffuse power when they work properly, is to diffuse power and hold it to account. And that's the key to me. It, what we want is an economic system uh, that does diffuse power, that does hold power to account, but does allow the creative forces that have led to uh, explosive improvements of living standards over the last two centuries. I said there were issues uh, with capitalism as I've uh, defined it. Uh, Clearly the most important, well, one of the most important issues uh, that the capitalist system defined in that way leaves us with is the, the sense of justice. What within a society is it acceptable to allow in terms of differences in particular of Levels of income and, and the level uh, and of enjoyment of the fruits of that growth that I think capitalism does generate. And it's the, 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 uh, the debate we've seen imperfectly, as always in a democracy, but we've seen in the recent general election. The debate in a capitalist economy is always between the extent of the collective decision-making and the extent of individual decision-making and the balance between the two. And if we could conduct the debate as nuance, as how much should be collective, how much should be individual, and what is the sense of justice that we, that, um, we should be guided by, that allows us to preserve the principles that I described, that's where I think the core political debate should rest.
4: Okay, so I've, I, I decided that I should sit back and, for, in preparing, uh, I should think, what what do economists mean when they say capitalism? And the answer is, economists don't say capitalism. We don't use that word, really. And and I think there's a reason, which is that what people seem to mean when they talk about capitalism is three not necessarily uh, connected things. There's some association between them, but they're not the same thing. Uh, One of them is markets, relying on... Decentralize, re- on decentralized, relying on prices to tell people what to produce, what to do, um, as opposed to uh, telling them what to do. Um, the second is the notion that your individual standard of living, your purchasing power, is, uh, is determined by what you can sell yourself or what you own on the market. Um, and the third is that the big determinant of how much you have, of how, how rich you are, if you like, is how much in the way of assets you own. So the, there's, there are these three things, market economies, uh, market incomes as being basically what income is, is about, and the third is, is capital in the sense of that, that, the, that, that being a capitalist is how you are a person of uh, exceptional uh, wealth and, and status and power. Um, and the thing is, in all three respects, we only sort of, kind of, partially live under capitalism in any of those senses. So if you ask about markets, and this is something where I, I'm just as... Uh, uh, one of the fu- funny things about market fundamentalists is that they their image of the, the economy we live in tends to be one in which it's all individuals freely contracting with each other, and good God. I mean, um, the, that's, that's not the way most people live. Um, we are... I was just looking at, at <laughs> the U.S. numbers. Uh, so um, m- more than half of U.S private sector employment. So first of all, we, we do have a public sector. People forget that. Even, uh, e- even now, despite the best efforts of, of some people, we still have a public sector. Um, and, but even half of private sector employment is in, in firms with more than 500 employees. Uh, a quarter of it is in firms with more than 10,000 employees. So um, basically workers, for the most part, do not live their work lives in the kind of atomistic uh, market freewheeling thing. And we have, if you like, we have li- large islands of, of non-market activity in, 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 a, in, a, in a market sea, but only just barely. And it it's wouldn't take a lot more for it to feel more like we had lakes of markets in the middle of a, of, of a, of a non-market landmass. So, so it's really, it, it, we're much more, much further from that, uh, market uh, picture than people imagine. Um, incomes. Uh, we have, in fact, in all advanced countries, even mine, uh, a lot of taxes and redistribution. We, uh, uh, what you what you get is linked to how much you get in the way of market income, but by no means the sole source. And it, in particular, uh, we even in the United States, uh, there's one of the things, we have debates now about Social Security, about changing pensions. And one thing you realize is that uh, people in Washington, people in the political system, uh, certainly people in, in the media, have really no idea what it's like for the vast majority of the population. Which is that what people live on in retirement is Social Security, is the government pension scheme. That uh, that it's the majority of income for it's the majority of income for the great majority of people after they reach the age of 65, and it is essentially all of income for about a third of the population after the age of 65. So we're already in a system where we're nowhere close to the notion that what you get is based upon what you can sell yourself for. Um, And the last bit about capital, I mean, how do we, uh, where does, let's say, private equity managers fit into the the notion of capitalism as being who owns the capital? Uh, Because those are, they they are certainly very wealthy and very powerful, powerful enough to buy themselves in the United States. extraordinary tax privilege. Um, it's not based on what they own exactly. Uh, they're ma- allegedly managing other people's money, uh, and yet they are, well, the favorite statistic is that the 25 top uh, ma- equity managers uh, earn about three times as much as uh, as the uh, 250,000 school teachers in New York. Um, so it's, it's quite a, uh, a lot of... Um, I'm sorry, it's 80,000 school teachers. I'm, I'm merging my, sti- anyway, you, you get the picture. It's enormously concentration, which is not exactly capitalism. Even Piketty um, concedes, I mean not concedes, he, he, he knows. And um, for, for the United States, for the Anglo-Saxon countries, Britain as well, the, um, uh, the vast increase in inequality so far has been mostly about, uh, about compensation. Uh, it has been about fees and, and bonuses and, and not about capital income. Capital income is growing and that there's a very powerful argument in Piketty's book that it will continue to grow. That we are on our way to becoming a patrimonial society but we are not now. At the moment we're not that kind of thing. So um, I, I think that actually in some ways the, the phrasing this in terms of capitalism is the way one would way put it. The question is could we have something that is substantially different from what we do now? Should we? Um, and my answer is sort of. The debate. Theme one. I'd like to
2: start with the, this OACD report, which came out, um, I think, uh, just about five days ago. And it said, that the gap between the rich and the poor keeps widening. In its 34 member states, this is the Organization for Economic Cooperation and Development, the richest 10% of the population earn 9.6 times the income of the poorest 10%. And then if we jump on, except in Latin America there's some sort of wrinkle there. And again, according to uh, Professor Joe Stiglitz from the uh, Columbia Business School, CEOs today get pay that's roughly 300 times that of ordinary workers. It used to be 20 or 30 times. No increase in productivity justifies this change in relative compensation. 300 times that of ordinary workers used to be 20 or 30 times. Alex, do you think this is inevitable? You've, you've argued that slow growth is inevitable. Do you, uh, not slow growth in this area of CEO pays. Do you think no. the, we are in on an inevitable road to greater and greater disparities of wealth
3: as a result of the existing form, at least, of capitalism that we have? Uh, well, it, uh, there's, a, as Piketty shows, there's a variation. In the mid-20th century, the gap between rich and poor diminished quite, quite considerably. Um, but uh, uh, since the Second World War, we've seen the progressive um, growth in the gap between, between rich, rich and poor. And, uh, I think, and I think one of the interesting things is that this coincides with the, the period in which um, a lot of the public sector restrictions on the operation of capital um, were at l- least reduced and in some cases dismantled. So Paul's right, that you've got public sector, all sorts of ways in which the state uh, limits the operation of, the, the, uh, of private e- economic actors, but those limitations have been reduced. Um, and I think that creates the context in which we've had this gr- growing gap between rich and poor. I, in this context, I think it's, uh, put, uh, putting it politely to Stephen, to say that I, I, it's a problematic to say that markets make people accountable. Because what we saw with the financial crisis, which is, uh, which is in a sector where regulation had been dismantled o- on a large scale, was precisely the the bankers who'd run the financial system into the ground not being held to account in any any seri- well, serious sort can of Can I hold you way. there and put this, yeah. that question too, uh, Stephen? I mean, I- is this growing disparity
2: inevitable, or do you think there are... Actu- and do you, are you concerned about it, first of all, or do you say... Overall, it may be beneficial. Uh,
1: Yes, I am concerned about it, uh, but I would also remind us uh, that when we see a a world in which chief executives take home telephone numbers as pay, uh, the question that actually I think matters more, I'm not saying it doesn't matter, but but what matters more is whether the system as a whole is delivering rising living standards and improving public services, the full experience of life, uh, to the community in which that chief executive is working. But that's why I I picked up Alex's first point, that capitalism leads inevitably to slow growth. Because if that were true, and there were a better system that led to uh, faster improvements of living standards, that would be a hugely important argument. But I don't think it is true. But, but
2: it's, it's also so. not true, if John uh, Just Diglitz. I think there's a relationship between the accelerating level of pay and productivity, for example. I, it's difficult to work out what's the connection between the rising levels proportionately and in any real sense of CEO's pays with improvements in necessarily in the companies for which they're responsible.
1: Well, it's actually c- the, the level of chief executive and bankers pay. Bankers are a, special c- are a special case. I wish they weren't, but they are because of th- the centrality of the banking system in a, 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 in a, financial, in a capitalist market. So it's the too-big-to-fail bu- too argument. All other producers in a, in a market system that works, and Alex is right to pick me up, I did include the provision that markets hold people to account when they work. I think the key point to make about markets, interesting Paul's view on this, but quite often people think... <laughs> that advocates of of market systems are in effect uh, advocating that the government, the public sector, stands out of all forms of economic activity. That's very much not my view. The market is not a state of nature. A functioning, effective market is actually a very elaborate set of rules, the regulators of which need to be all the time fine-tuning those rules against the purpose of making the market an effective means of diffusing power and holding th- holding it to account. The justification of markets at the centre of this system is that they hold people to account and they diffuse power. If they don't do that, the rules should be tweaked in order better to deliver that central purpose.
2: Paul, but I put that question uh, to you that I raised earlier. Do you think the gap, the increasing gap between rich and poor,
4: is inevitable? Okay, I mean. No, and and we know that it's not because we actually have a lot of history here. I mean, we've had some system that you would have called capitalism, surely, for the past century plus, and there has by by no means that's it. There is not a story of a monotonically increasing um, I- income inequality disparities over that period uh, it for both the U.S. and the U.K., but especially for the U.S. Um, it's it's a it's a great uh, U-shaped thing where we had a extremely unequal society, and before the the 1930s, uh, it became a much more equal distribution uh, over the course of the 30s and then the war, um, and actually did not start, inequality did not start rising right after World War II, it actually stuck in that relatively uh, equal, not by no means totally equal, but relatively equal distribution for about 30 years, and then begins to, inequality begins to increase again rather rapidly after circa 1980, um, and we think, now the question of what that's all about, I mean, there, there have been uh, uh, many, many trees have been destroyed um, and many, many even more digital trees destroyed to, to, to discuss that topic. But we think that, that it, uh, I think at least that there's a lot of uh, a role for policy and politics in there, uh, which s- tells you that it's, it's at least as far as the, the straight economics goes, it, it's much of it is reversible. Uh, so, if we ask why are CEOs paid so much now, um, well, uh, they are, by and large, finance is a special case, but, but not, not one that, that uh, l- makes you think well of their paychecks, um, and then the rest, for the most part, it is in fact executives at, at, at largest firms. So ha- what determines the pay of executives? There is not a market in CEOs. There is, you don't go down to a street corner and, and, uh, and, and pay the going rate for a CEO. Um, CEOs are, have compensation committees which decide how much they shall be paid. Uh, who appoints the compensation committee? Well, the answer is the CEO. Uh, now, the interesting question is why was that process abused so much less uh, 40 years ago than it is today? And that probably brings you back quite a lot to politics, brings you to the role of, of labor unions, uh, just generally, and, and of values, uh, people uh, that it was it was regarded as shameful um, for a, a, a chief executive to hand pick a committee that would then pay him absurd amounts of money and now it's uh, all shame has disappeared, but perhaps can be brought back. Wages at the bottom. Uh, can you legislate wages? Can you put up a minimum wage? Uh, and a lot of people based on on their belief in in the invisible hand, say, no, obviously, if you try to increase the minimum wage, it will do terrible things to employment. But we have a lot now of very careful statistical studies. And the, the, um, the median estimate of the impact of a minimum wage increase on employment is zero.
1: Do you want to hear more from the world's leading thinkers? and there's no commitment to pay, so subscribe now to understand the world beyond the surface level.
0: Theme two.
2: Can you make
3: a case for a
2: viable new alternative to capitalism?
3: Uh, it partly depends on what you mean by new, because the debate... Right, or about... viable, then. Vi- viable, <laughs> viable, viable is the important word here, <laughs> because the debate about capitalism has been going on for about 200 years, and it's very striking how the same issues get aired over again and again. (laughs) I'm essentially in favour of a democratically planned economy, and the reason why I think we need a democratically planned economy is because of something that we haven't talked about yet, which is climate change, Um, which um, I think is primarily a product of the unplanned and blindly-driven economic transformation of the world that we've seen under, under capitalism and which can only be dealt with by, ma- by essentially moving to uh, um, an economy that doesn't rely on the generation of CO2 in the way in which we do at do the minute. I simply can't see how we can do that without planning on a very large scale. All the stuff of carbon credits and so on, the market solutions, just don't seem to me to begin to address the scale, scale of the problem. But when you say democratically, so, so, well, if you talk about
2: me, democratically planned, yeah. because the co- argument always puts yeah. you about socialism is, is fundamentally it uh, results in the concentration of power in too few hands and we know the results. No, so how can, what, how, what do you mean by democratically planned well,
3: economy? What I was going to say was that that what we're faced with, I think, is a choice between probably highly undemocratic and authoritarian uh, forms of planning imposed from above to deal with the increasingly uh, devastating effects of climate change or democratic planning. Democratic planning would involve clearly... Need, there need to be decisions at as hi- high a level as possible in order to set the broad parameters of economic activity. Then within that, you could ha- with within that framework, you could have groups of consumers and producers in particular regions, in particular sectors cooperating to decide e- economic. Economic priorities. So I'm not advocating a version of the kind of Soviet system where supposedly there was this thing called Gosplan, the State Planning Commission which claimed to know everything that was happening in the economy and could anticipate what was happening in advance. That was a form of technocratic fantasy that destroyed itself. But I think that it's possible to develop much more decentralised forms of planning in order to begin to address the problems we'd faced. But does that assume that majorities are always likely to be better informed
2: than experts in a particular field? What happens if the majority, for example, does not accept... Uh, that man is making a significant contribution to climate change.
3: Well, that's the risk of democracy, isn't it? I know, but you're
2: proposing a system which you say would be preferable for humanity, and you have to argue, therefore, that the democracy on an issue like individuals, on an issue like climate change, are going to be rather better or come to
3: better judgments than politicians perhaps in the existing system informed by experts. Well, there's a lot of scope for improvement, isn't there? At the minute, expert expert advice and information is handed over to decision-makers who are either politicians and bureaucrats on the one hand, all the kind of corporate executives that Paul was ta- talking about. But there will always about. be decision makers, no, right? Yeah, they? no, but, but, uh, but you were talking particularly about the problem of expert advice. Expert I was advice. talking about problem democracies, d- your, your suggestion that in some
2: way this is a democratically planned economy, and I, I just want to elaborate that when the democracy comes to conclusions, why you think inevitably a large number of people involved in a process necessarily results in complex technological areas coming to a better conclusion?
3: Because economic power in the societies in which we live is in the hands of very small and self-interested groups who select the expert advice that suits them and ignores, ignores much of the, the, the information that do doesn't suit, suit them. I don't think it's a terribly unreasonable assumption to say that if people generally who don't have the same sort of vested interests in the kind of uh, economic patterns under we, uh, we live today were well, given the chance to decide about these things, they might make a better go of it than the current lot do. Stephen?
1: Well, I want to draw out something that I think is an interesting irony in the position we're in because uh, we are actually about to launch or we're in the process of launching an exercise of democratic planning of a sector of the economy Uh, And that's uh, what I'm thinking of, is the integration of health and social care expenditure in Manchester, uh, where there is an exercise going on under the new Tory government uh, in vesting uh, the power to make decisions on behalf of patients and service users uh, in Manchester in a more democratic, uh, locally-oriented body... Uh, than the traditional uh, NHS social care structures. And I was very struck when Alex was talking about taking power away from vested interests and, and, and putting it more in the hands of individuals and of local communities, which is exactly what I think in that context. will. I, uh, it's ironic, but I do think it's true that will lead to better decision-making. But I think there's a key to make that work effectively, which brings me back Uh, to my view, uh, that you'll do that more effectively, certainly by introducing a bigger democratic voice into that collective decision-making. I absolutely agree with that. But also, where possible, allowing individuals to make choices about how their care is delivered, and critically uh, introducing the role, the, the proposition, that if there's a better model of care, from uh, than the one currently provided by the Christie or the, Uni- the Manchester University hospitals, we should be open to hear how that could be done better than the current vested interests. So, as uh, I thought, it was an interesting opportunity to make the point that these arguments aren't actually as extremely separate as they're sometimes painted as being. Uh, actually, it's the, a, a Tory government, we'll see whether they do it. Uh, but is introducing a more democratic uh, planning process into this service, including the principle of contested markets to allow new ideas to deliver better care and better value for money. So, Alex,
2: would you accept this sort of rethinking is possible within a capitalist structure? It doesn't
3: require require the replacement of it. The the problem with saying that is that there's... um Uh, There is the decentralisation that Stephen was describing, but it's within the framework of a government economic policy which is driven by austerity and and privatisation. And therefore, (laughs) I'm not... You know, I'm in in favour of decentralisation and the spread of economic and... Political democracy. So, in principle, I'm not opposed to to that. But I think the framework within which this particular move is is taking place is 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 highly 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 problematic. But and I, I don't guess think it's
1: true, isn't it? We can, uh, I- if we can establish a level of which we're, uh, we we uh, uh, a set of principles we agree about, then the fact uh, we're we're confining areas of disagreement. Whereas people might have come into this thinking, a former Tory cabinet minister and an editor from a Marxist journal, the chances of them finding common ground are relatively remote.
3: I agree, I agree. it's a, 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 little, a little surprise. Can I, <laughs> can I just say one thing? about using markets to test alternatives. I mean, I think that's a very important issue in any uh, attempt at at planning. For me, I think the crucial thing is to have different teams of experts offering different sets of proposals so that people can choose between those between those proposals. Part of the problem with bureaucratic decision-making is that there's a filtering of advice and information which means that mm. one set of proposals are delivered to people. So I prefer that, um, if, if you like, competition between teams of experts than d- market forms I d- I d- of competition I d- I d- to test.
1: I go quite a long way with you, uh, as long as we understand what we mean by the, con- by the word expert. Because sometimes... Sure. Sometimes an expert is simply somebody who's already proved doing it the traditional way rather than being open to a new idea. Or or a lobbyist.
2: Paul Trugger, can I bring you in on this and this concept (laughs) of a a democratically planned economy which is being argued for by Alex? Um,
4: Does that make sense to you? Oh, boy. Um, (laughs) Look, actually, I want to just... Before, uh, I want to talk just for a second about climate change which is, I think, rather interesting. I w- I'm kind of shocked at that the notion that you would view uh, carbon taxation or tradable uh, permits uh, as h- somehow wholly inadequate. Uh, most most of what I think we know suggests that when you can provide an incentive for people to, to worry about carbon production uh, or activities that lead to carbon emissions, that it actually... Uh, we, we have, you know, limited experience with things like sulfur dioxide, which have, have w- really worked pretty well. But on the other hand, there's an interesting thing about, about the specific issue. Because, well, we, every economist uh, who is willing to Admit that there's any problem there. We'll say, "Oh yes, the right way to do is to to do it is to put a price on carbon, and that's what we should do." But in the United States, we have the problem that uh, the president understands that, people around the president understand that, but the uh, the um, half of the U.S. political system, and in particular the U.S. Congress, is controlled by people who believe that climate change can't be a problem because God wouldn't let that happen, or something like that. <laughs> so. Um, uh, Which leaves you with nothing, which rather weirdly leaves you with nothing on the table except executive action, which is top-down planning. So, well, that can't possibly deal with a problem this complex, except it turns out that in this case, when you look into the issue, while, yes, there are many, many different margins on which we ought to be doing stuff, mostly it comes down to coal-burning power plants. And, yes, the president can probably simply order uh, uh, new standards that will uh, prevent the uh, actually already has basically com- preventing the construction of any new coal burning plants and will require over time shutting down or finding ways to recapture the carbon from existing ones and the, the plan solution is not quite as good as what we think we could do with a market based solution but not too bad. So I w- if we have this kind of fetishism that everything is mar- must be markets because it's too complex to plan that even in this case is not true. And there are plenty of areas, including, I think, in many cases, uh, health-related issues, where, in fact, planning works better than markets. Uh, so um, the point is to, is to be open-minded. I- is there something in new besides planning versus markets? And I think the answer is there probably is some scope for having organizations in which people are paid a salary, so they're not, uh, they're not capitalist in the sense that people are earning their income or selling stuff, but which are decentralized. You al- where you allow people down at some relatively small lower level to make decisions, uh, hopefully with uh, with good intentions. Um, th- so there, there may be some ground which is a kind of a third way. I don't know how far it can extend, but I mean the main thing is actually that to realize, I think actually that this is a problem that, the right is more delusional than the left by far on this. That we do not now have an economy of free markets and individual choice. I mean, uh, anybody who really believes that we're living in that kind of world should should read, uh, uh, be, be forced to read two or three months' worth of Dilbert comic strips and uh, ask yourself, is that is that your your free market economic freedom society being described there? Right, uh, Alex, we had to come back on this before we I open it up.
3: Well, just very very simply, I, I don't think the the. Pro- I don't think carbon markets address things like fracking. It's clear that uh, we cannot afford to use all the sources of uh, carbon f- fuel that are in the, in the ground. But there's a, until recently, highly successful and profitable American industry whose influence is now spreading globally, which is seeking precisely to do that on a very large, but large scale. But demaci- under um, a demac-
2: democratically planned economy, would you which democracy or which what are the boundaries of the democracy if you look at the particular needs of an area which, within which fracking is supposed to take place, do you elevate those above the if they are the benefits of fracking that would affect others it 's a bit like do you have a third runway or whatever is how do you determine which the boundaries
3: of the democracy that are taking these decisions but this is a this is a feature of any decision-making process that you're going to you you're going to have to reserve some t- decisions for a higher and broader level than, than others and I think the kind of kind of sources of energy we use are ones that are going to have to be taken well I mean actually uh, and in some ways this is the biggest channel a challenge for um, for for the kind of uh, proposals that I, I support, when it when it comes to climate change, the decisions would have to be taken at the global level. So sure, they're
4: saying. By the way, when you worry that the public uh, uh, might go and, and pick and choose experts to listen to who tell them what, what they want to hear, I I thought that was a pretty good description of finance ministers. <laughs> That's true. Theme three.
2: Can we just look ahead five years' time? And ask Paul Plum and Start with you. Do you, um, is, do you see capitalism beginning to resolve some of the issues that we've been dealing with here, or uh, do you have a rather bleaker assessment for the next few years?
4: Oh boy! Um, uh, one is obliged to quote Yogi Berra, which is uh, predictions are hard, especially about the future. Um, no, I mean I think there are there are there are branching pathways. And lots of things could happen. I mean, I, I would, uh, uh, in Europe, a, a lot depends upon what actually, how, how things play out on the Greek situation. And uh, um, if they have any sense, the Northern European, essentially the, the Troika, the, 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 the institutions formerly known as the Troika, um, will make a deal that, that allows uh, Greece to have a tolerable situation. Uh, you know, not, not still terrible, but, but tolerable uh, outlook and, and things will go on. Um, quite strong possibility that they will not. And if uh, the most interesting case there would be, suppose Greece is in fact forced out of the euro and suppose that it actually does well that after after a year of chaos, which is is predictable, then the greatly devalued uh, new drachma leads to enormous numbers of of beer drinking Brits going to the Greek Isles, and the economy <laughs> flourishes. In which case, th- the rest of th- in which case, Podemos in Spain, other part, then then we're g- then we're going to see a really serious radicalization within Europe. United States, tell me who the next president and the president after that's going to be. If it's uh, if it's Hillary Clinton I think the US is probably in for a range of moderate reforms to capitalism, inadequate but but enough to keep us going for quite a while um, alternatively, we could be headed for uh, you know, return to the to the Spanish Inquisition or something like that. So, um, <laughs> <laughs> I think it's it's really a wide spread yes. of possibilities.
2: Uh, Monty, Monty Python, Python returns to the stage. Right. Um, could I ask you, year. Steve Dorr, I mean, does looking ahead the future, does Europe uh, is Europe the big question that stands in the way of any assessment
1: about the crisis in capitalism or whatever? Um, th- it 's a big p- British political question, of course it is i don 't uh, I mean, whatever we decide the eu will carry on and, and capital I- in ter- in terms of the the <laughs> global economy I think it's, that's actually it 's a big issue for us i don 't think it 's a big issue for the global economy um, w- uh, th- I think much bigger issue for Europe is what actually it was neatly illustrated by the discussion of the Greek situation is that uh, should the pain Uh, ...for what happened in Greece over the last decade be taken exclusively by the Greeks who did the irresponsible borrowing... ...or should a share at least of the pain be borne by the Germans and the French who did the irresponsible lending? And at the moment the, the power structures is imposing the cost on the Greeks... ...which not surprisingly is going down very badly in Greece... Uh, and incidentally doesn't correspond with any understanding I would have, or I suspect most people would have, of justice, which is precisely why uh, the risk of Greece Greece falling out of the euro, with the same uh, implications working through the rest of the Mediterranean basin, to huge cost in northern Europe, uh, that's why that's a real risk, because the Germans and the French won't accept the consequences of irresponsible lending. Um, that's, w- that's, in my view, what the issue is in Europe. As to whether I'm an optimist for the future, I'm only a recently retired member of the House of Commons, so I have to be an optimist.
2: <laughs> and finally, Alex, if you go just briefly... In yes. five years' time, do in, you see in, the in crisis fi- in capitalism getting worse?
3: I, in five years' t- uh, time, the most probable outcome is more of the same. Continued economic stagnation and a continuation of neoliberal policies... And if we look beyond Europe or beyond the United States, I don't think the picture is radically different. The Chinese economy is slowing down. The other brick economies aren't doing so well either. So I think this is a much more general picture than just just, just the North. I agree with Paul, uh, b- partly because of the sheer ineptitude and cynicism of the EU elites uh, they are creating the conditions where you are getting a little, uh, laboratories of social and political alternatives developing in Southern Europe, most clearly in Greece, but also also in the, in the Spanish state. So you're an optimist and then in terms of I'm your an opt- optimist. If, if those movements do succeed in developing alternatives to neoliberalism, then I'm, I'll be very optimistic.
0: Thank you for listening to this Institute of Art and Ideas podcast. If you enjoyed this debate and want to carry on the discussion, visit IAI.tv. Remember to subscribe and review on iTunes. Look around. You can find cars like these on AutoTrader. Like that car riding your tail. Or if you're tailgating right now, all those cars doubling as kitchens and living rooms are on AutoTrader too. Are you working out and listening to this ad at the same time? Well, multitasking pro...